welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hi, I'm Micah, uh, one of the pastors here at Awaken. Glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We're going to look at John 11 and Luke 19. So, a um, little Bible sword drill there. Um, actually, we're going to start with that. So if you can, I'd invite you to stand, and we will read from John 11 first, and then Luke 19 second. John 11, starting in verse 32, says this. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, and Jesus wept. Luke 19, starting in verse 41. As he, being Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Pray with me. God, this morning as we turn our attention to the scriptures and what you might have for us, I pray that you would do as you always do, um, that your word uh, would not return void, but that it would do the work that it's set out to do, that it would be alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to um, cut through what's true and not true in us and in the world that we live in. So invite us, uh, encourage us um, to be more and more the people that you've intended us to be. I pray in the strong name of Christ and all God's people said together. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Welcome to Awaken and uh, our summer series entitled Lost in Translation. If you're new, we have done this series before, and this year we're looking at the words of Jesus and essentially trying to find the most bizarre, the most difficult passages we can find that Jesus utters uh, and and really tackle them head on. We do this for a couple of reasons, the first of which is I and we as a community believe that the Bible, the scriptures, are have been and often are and can be an altar where we meet the living God, that this is a place in which God chooses to reveal God's self to us so again and again. It has been the case and often is the case and likely will be the case in the future. And so we want to take that seriously. We also don't want to be naive about the fact that uh, there are difficult passages in the Bible, amen? If you've ever read a passage and thought to yourself, that can't be true. Like that, that's, that's not in the Bible, is it? Uh, those passages are in there, and so we don't want to be naive about that, but we want to take seriously what it means to read well. And as your pastor, maybe thirdly, I would say, I want and I hope to teach you as, as people interested in following Jesus how to navigate the Bible, how to, uh, to have tools to read it well, and maybe most importantly, to ask the best questions of it. Krista Tippett says that questions elicit answers of their kind. Which means if you ask a really shallow question, you'll likely get a really shallow answer. But if you ask a deep and profound question, then you will likely be on the right track. So I want to teach you, I hope, to ask good questions about the scriptures. That our questions aren't off limits, that our doubts and our wonderings and our, even our disagreements with the text are not off limits. Uh, so that's why we do this series. And this morning I've chosen two verses from uh, John and Luke. One of them is about when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, and John eleven thirty five 35 says, Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the Bible. And the other is about when Jesus enters the city, 
before Holy Week begins, and he peers over the city, and he weeps over it because of what it had become and who the people of God had become, and his dismay in that moment causes him to weep. Now, you might be thinking, these aren't very difficult to translate, Micah, or they're very, not very difficult to interpret, right? Jesus cries, what's the big deal? To which I would say, you're right, maybe these aren't uh, lost-in-translation-worthy passages, but I would argue that the idea of lament and grief is not something we do well. As Westerners, as Americans, I don't think this is something we do uh, tremendously well as a culture. And as a subculture of Christians, I would argue we definitely don't do it well. At least that's not been my experience. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to find a Christian song that doesn't resolve. Do you know what I'm saying? Like a good old-fashioned breakup song with Jesus where there is no good words for him. (laughs) Uh, There aren't any. I looked. I tried to find some for this week, and they just don't exist. It's always, they always end with like, Jesus is my buddy and my pal and he's going to fix everything. But sometimes it doesn't feel that way, right? And so I want to lean into what does it mean that Jesus weeps and grieves and laments and what does it mean for us? Uh, So that's the reason I've chosen uh, these passages. They may seem straightforward, but we're not very good at lament. And the other part I would say is authenticity. Uh, It's on this little board over here. And when we started this church, we said from the very beginning that authenticity would be of high value. And if I'm being totally honest with you, uh, many of you have asked me recently how I'm doing, and truth be told, not well. Uh, I, I find it very difficult to lie to you, and, uh, and I'm not doing well. Over the last three weeks uh, since Omaha and our denominational annual meeting, um, what comes most naturally these days is just tears and sadness. And so I want to um, speak this morning, I want to, for a moment, speak generally about lament and grief and why it's important to the spiritual life. And then I want to try to speak specifically to maybe let you in and help you understand why my heart is uh, a little bit broken these days. So uh, if you intended to come for an encouraging and uplifting message, you're going to have to call KTIS. <clears throat> that was pretty good. That just came to me right there. A little bit of levity before we go to the depths. Uh, Generally, why is lament important? Why is it, why should it be part of the spiritual life? I find it ironic that the shortest verse in the Bible is maybe one of the more profound verses in the Bible. Jesus wept. What does it mean to say that the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate God, wept over the loss of a friend? And over the loss of, or the choices and direction of a city and a people whom he loved. Feels like I can relate to that in this moment. What can we learn from these two words? When's the last time you wept? Like, when you were overcome with grief, and it just split you wide open, and all that came out was tears. And what does it mean to say that Jesus knows? That God becomes human and, and somehow knows that sadness and that depth of grief, knows the salty, hot tears. The Bible seems to be completely okay with the fact that grief and lament are a part of it. 14 of the 150 psalms could be categorized as lament psalms. There's a whole book called Lamentations, which if you didn't know, is one giant lament. 
The book of Job is filled with lament. The book of Proverbs, the Psalms are full of them. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Jesus himself on the cross quotes a psalm when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No resolve there. Just an existential question that goes to the depths of what it means to be human. Why have you left me? So what is it? And why is it important? Definitionally, lament is simple. It's to express deep regret, grief, sorrow, or anger. So it's when a human names the deep sadness, sorrow, grief, anger, uh, regret in their life. And specifically, in the Christian tradition, it's to take it a step further and to take your sadness, your grief, your anger, your despair, and to direct it to the divine. To send it to God. We send it, we give it to, we, we, we direct it towards God because we hold a conviction and a belief that it is God who holds and heals and presides over all things. That there isn't any place or space in the cosmos, including my soul, that God is not present and aware of. And so while it seems sometimes when we come to grief and we come to lament and we really want to give it to God and we want to call God what we really think, we, many of us have a hesitancy there and we back up a little bit because we're afraid. We're scared of swearing at God or we're scared of saying the things that we really feel about God because maybe that shows a lack of faith or it shows some sort of disrespect to God. And I would argue that it's not a, a lack of faith. But to lament and properly lament with no filters is a deep act of faith. Because we bring those things to God in belief that God is the author of resurrection and new life. It's only after we lament that we, and we face and express what's true and real that we can experience healing. More theologically, we could say that it's only after facing and going through death that we can experience new life and resurrection. It's just the way it works. So lament is just simply naming our grief, regret, sadness, sorrow, anger, and then directing that to God, sending that his way, God's way. Now, why is it important? I'll offer two thoughts. First, lament is necessary in the two-person covenant relationship we've been invited to participate in. Let me break that down a little bit. The Bible speaks a lot about covenant And it just so happens that God in Scripture is one party in the covenant offer, and you and I or the church are the other party involved in the offer. You can't have a covenant with one person. It requires two free agents choosing to be participants in the covenant. So it it requires you and I to have freedom and agency and choice. I would submit to you that it's... uh, in order for that to actually be a relationship and not be some sort of dictated benevolent thing where God where it sort of feigns freedom, but it is, really isn't, that you and I have to be free, that we have to actually be, uh, there has to be room for lament because in lament, there is possibility for differentiation between us and God to speak psychologically, right? There is a healthy development of ego and personhood that's, re- that's required for relationship, Without it, you can't have it. Walter Brueggemann speaks about it in this way. He is an Old Testament prophet, did a lot of work on the prophets and on lament, and he says this. One loss that results from the absence of lament is the loss of genuine covenant interaction because the second party, you and I, has become voiceless 
or has a voice that is permitted only to speak of praise and doxology. Where lament is absent, covenant comes into being only as celebration or joy or doxology, well-being, and since such celebrative consenting silence doesn't square with our reality, he argues that covenant minus or relationship minus lament is finally, get this, a practice of denial, cover-up, and pretense. When we're not honest with God, it's a it's a mirage. It's not a relationship. When that's not possible, when we can't let God have it, when we can only say yes and praise God, that doesn't square with our reality because who here has experienced pain or loss or sadness? Anyone? Anyone in the room? Raise your hands if you have. Okay. To not be honest about that is to not be in a real relationship with God if we can't bring that to God. That's what Brueggemann is saying. He goes on to say, where there is lament, the believer is able to take initiative with God and so develop over and against God the ego strength necessary for responsible faith. What has he said? To mature in faith requires the possibility for lament and the interaction with lament because in doing so, we differentiate ourselves from God. We are autonomous agents of free will who can speak our adoration and our sadness to God. So Brueggemann would argue that it is necessary for us to be in relationship with God, and I would agree with him. Secondly, I'll say that lament is honest and has the potential to be productive. You and I, friends, if given long enough, we will all experience and suffer loss. We will struggle. We will face pain and heartache and injustice. We'll come face to face with brokenness in ourselves, in our friends, our family, and in the world that we live in. Like, just give it time. It's like Novocaine. It always works. Lament in Scripture is the invitation to be honest about that loss, that heartache, that injustice, and to bring even that, your anger, your sadness, your despair, your grief, into the presence of God. And if you intend to be in the presence of God, you can't fake it until you make it. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I say this all the time you know, in other situations. Like, just fake it till you make it, baby. We can do this. To my wife, I say that. <laughs> you can't say that to God. If God is omnipotent, all-knowing, all-seeing, right? Like, you can't be in the presence of God and have secrets. There are no shadows. So to lament is an invitation to name the sadness, the grief, the anger, the despair, the loss. To name it and invite, like usher it into the hands of God, who is love and hope and peace and light and healing. At that point, it has the possibility of being restored and healed. I would argue God is not the author of your loss, pain, grief, and sadness and anger, but rather God it asks us, invites us, to allow God to participate in it with us. This is the absolute unbelievable incarnation that we are not alone and that God is Emmanuel and comes into if we allow and there the possibility lies of healing and hope and restoration we sang about it earlier right all this pain that's I look around the world and I just see pain and darkness and I wonder can it ever be changed can we ever but you make beautiful things out of broken things this is who God is this is what God does so lament it's honest It's just saying what is and inviting God to be in the midst of that and to not bifurcate ourselves and have separate versions of ourselves, one that we bring to church and the other one that's in our closet weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? 
No, it's to integrate those two things and say, they're all one and it all belongs. Now, let's bring this a little bit closer. Caveat before I do. For those of you that might be new to Awaken, um, this may feel like a a family meeting, and uh, it's because it is in some ways. And so if you're new, thank you for being here. I'm glad you're here. I don't want you to feel awkward or that you don't belong here. Uh, You do. In fact, I'm glad you're here because in some ways you'll get to see how we do hard things, uh, and that's a good thing, hopefully in in a healthy way. Uh, but it may feel or sound a little insider because it is. Uh, at the end of June, Jenna, one of our associate pastors, Dane, who uh, served on our advisory team, and myself went to our annual meeting for our denomination in Omaha, which is the Evangelical Covenant Church. And at this meeting, uh, the ordination of two pastors, colleagues and friends of mine, were revoked, removed. Uh, they were defrocked, as it were. And one church was involuntarily dismissed from the roster of covenant churches. Largely, all three of them, the two pastors in the church, because of their posture and their stated positions towards LGBTQ people and Christians and their participation in the life of their churches. Now, I recognize that these are always complicated situations and it always takes two to dance. That is always true. Uh, And I'm not going to go into all the details of why that happened or how it happened, but that's the short version of what happened. And I said to you a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, that as a participant in that meeting, that something died in Omaha. And, uh, and I'm trying to make sense of that. And that's largely why I find myself with more tears than I do anything else these days. So I want to speak briefly about what I think died and why it's been so difficult First and foremost, for me, what has died, or at least what is dying, is the vision of something beautiful. I started this church nine years ago with the hope of a particular kind of people who would gather. And I have found that in the covenant, there has been a compelling and beautiful picture that has to do with how we've done life together in the past and how we talk about who we are as a people and the way in which we hold each other and what we believe to be true. I'll quote two different people to to try to give you a sense of these two ideas that I think are central to what it means to be the covenant, church, and pietism, which is the traditional or the, the, the historical movement we come from. The first is a guy named Carl Olson, and this is way back in the day. He's dead now. He has buildings named after him at North Park. But he's speaking about a particular time in covenant history where fundamentalists, uh, evangelical fundamentalists, who were so concerned about the Bible and how we talked about the Bible, wanted to sort of take hold of the covenant and move it towards fundamentalism. And Olson is speaking against that. Here's what he says. The covenant is a Bible-believing fellowship, but it has never officially subscribed to the tenets of fundamentalism or evangelicalism. If by this we mean a strict adherence to scriptural inerrancy or verbal inspiration. He says, there are many covenanters who are fundamentalists, and they belong to the family of faith, together with everyone else who believes that the scriptures are the word of God. They share the rights and privileges pertaining to membership, just like everyone else, but there is one right they do not have, get this now, and that is to demand that all other covenanters must believe as they do. What's just been said? 
Olson is defending a central position, which is to say the Bible is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. That's what we've said all along from the very beginning. And he's saying that you don't have to go beyond that. You don't have to go beyond that and say that it's infallible, inerrant, and inspired, and all these other things that everybody was arguing about and dismembering parts of the the body of Christ because of. He's saying, no, 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 no. There are fundamentalists in our midst, and they're welcome to participate in the life of our church, just like anyone else. But they may not and they cannot ask everyone to believe as they do on non-essential matters. This is... This is so important, and it's so beautiful. I think it's why the covenant has been so compelling to me, and why this church, I think, is so compelling to some of you, because we refuse to cut members of the body of Christ off when they disagree on matters that aren't essential. We will not do it. And the covenant for 130 years has said, we don't do that. And as I sat in Omaha, that is not what happened. Here's another quote from a former president, Glenn Palmberg, who I may or may not have done shots of fireball with. (laughs) There is a freedom which knows no boundaries, total openness where anything is acceptable. It is inclusion based on indifference. There is another freedom that comes from knowing who you are and what you believe. It comes from being secure in one's relationship to God. It is a security that allows the risk of accepting people who are different from oneself. Covenant freedom is the latter. It comes from people who know they did not earn and do not deserve God's acceptance. People who know their salvation is by grace through faith. It creates in them, in us, a humility that refuses to believe that they have the last word on truth or some matter of interpretation. It enables them to hold their convictions with grace toward those who hold a different position. Friends, for me, as I sat and I watched and I listened to what happened in Omaha, there was a marked shift from what I have studied and and learned to be true about the covenant and had experienced up until then what was true about the covenant. At Awaken, we call it wells and fences. You all are covenanters, you just don't know it. This vision of a church that despite all of our differences, despite all the things we can divide over and separate over, despite all the dismembering that has happened in the years of Christian history, there is one needful thing that binds us together in unity, and it is Christ and Christ alone, nothing more. And it's this Christ at work in this body that is remembering separated brothers and sisters, and I think that's really good news for the world. The world does not need one more Christian organization who splits and divides itself and says, we can't agree, we can't agree, so we, d- we separate and we go our separate ways. That, to me, is bad news. There was a significant blow, in my opinion, delivered to this beautiful and fragile vision, one that I was probably naive enough to believe was true, that our unity and our bond is that we are in Christ that you are my sister and you are my brother and I am your brother. And we don't chop each other off when we disagree on something that's not essential. That's That's not what we do. We're not unified because of our discerned positions. We're not unified because of our interpretations of this text or that. We're not unified because of our beliefs about the afterlife or about when Jesus comes back or communion or baptism for the sacraments for you crying out loud. 
We're not unified because we voted for this candidate or for that. We're unified because we are in Christ. And my experience was a decisive move away from that center, that center that's bound us together as a denomination for 130 years and that's bound us together as a church for nine years. And it's breaking my heart. I wanted to stand up and say, like, I believed you! We believed you! And personally, this may be the hardest part. It's the relationships that have died and are dying. I can't tell you how many friends I had, used to have, that over the last two years have just quietly and slowly backed away. Because we're such terrible people and we're such awful church and I'm such a terrible pastor. I say that in jest, it's not true. People that I believed were friends, spiritual fathers and brothers and sisters, who just kind of avoid where there was once embrace and laughter and drinking, there's just like cold, awkward glances. So when you ask how I'm doing, I'm not doing well. I'm angry and I'm sad. When you've been welcomed into a family and asked to participate and bring your voice and then are just discarded, that's a tough pill to swallow. And I'm not telling you these things because I want you to feel bad for me or because I want you to send me cards or flowers. But I'm telling you because some of you have asked, like, why are you so mad about or sad about what happened in Omaha? Like, you're not surprised by that vote, are you? And I'm not. It's just how it happened and the way in which it happened and the language around it happening. And now, the friends that I'm losing and have lost because of it. So if I'm being totally honest, this passage this morning is as much about you as it is me. And I don't want to be a pastor of a church that fakes it. I don't want to be a pastor of a church who's asked to just keep getting up there and like, just fake it till you make it. Because I just don't have anything to say these days. What usually gives me great joy is just a really, really heavy weight. So, um, our advisory team and Jenna and I sat down last week and just tried to figure out what do we do? And they have agreed to give, uh, they deemed it wise to extend a, some space for Jenna and I and others uh, to take the time that we need to grieve and to lament and to not keep having to stand here and offer something out of nothing. So here's what this means. Um, for the next month, for August, I'm not going to speak uh, it just feels really, really hard to make something, to offer something to you. We were going to be gone for part of August on vacation, and we just kind of expanded that for Sunday mornings. And so I've asked some of my friends who uh, are lovers of Awaken in this community to come and to be, be with us. I'll be here for 
multiple weeks, but I'm just not going to speak. Jenna is currently um, at a cabin with Judy, if you remember Judy from Easter. Judy's just doing what she does, which is bind up the wounded and put bandages on the broken. And so Jenna's just being pastored by Judy right now. And so she'll be gone for part of August. And eventually we have some discerning to do as a church. Uh, I have some discerning. Jenna has some discerning to do about like my ordination in this denomination and our participation in it. But we're just going to press pause. And we're not going to make any big decisions out of grief and sadness. We're going to let that season be what it needs to be before we move on. Um, that's why we moved the study from August to September. So this isn't like a get-out-of-jail-free card. This isn't like a free pass to not work. It's, it's, a, it's an invitation to do a different kind of work that our church and our leadership team uh, deems helpful, healthy, and appropriate and necessary for its leaders, I being one of them, uh, which I'm grateful for. So I'm going to see my spiritual director a bunch. I'm going to probably walk in the woods with my dog because she doesn't judge me and she always listens. And then we'll see where, what grows. Um, so to close, you may have come here this morning and maybe you needed space to name and grieve some of the same things I'm grieving uh, and we wanted to be able to offer that. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't have as much invested in the covenant as I do. That's okay. I'm guessing that there's, there may be something that you brought here this morning that you carried that's really heavy. And we want to make space for that. Allow you the opportunity to say whatever it is you need to say to God. Swear words are on the table. Unless there are children near you and then you can discern how that works. Like anything you need to say to God. And then we're going to come to the table. This ironic and beautiful thing that so many different people who think all kinds of different things keep coming to you to say this is where we find unity and this is where we are one. Before we do that, I want to read a poem, and Dan is going to sing uh, a song. You may not have heard it, which is fine. I just invite you to hear it and listen and allow it to be. Uh, this has been a bit of a psalm for me in moments and seasons when I felt like I was at the bottom of the barrel and there wasn't anything to give. So I asked him to play that for us, um, and he'll do that in just a moment. Before he does, I want to read this poem which someone sent to me this week, and when, it, when I found it, or when it found me, I should say, it just felt like uh, one of those moments where you, you feel seen by God, that it was, it was just true, and it just keeps ringing true. And so maybe, maybe it will be of value to you this morning. And then I'll lead us towards the table. This is called The Blessing for One Who Is Exhausted by John O'Donohue. When the rhythm of the heart becomes hectic and time takes on the strain until it breaks, 
then all the unattended stress falls in on the mind like an endless, increasing weight. The light in the mind becomes dim, and things you could take in your stride before now become laborsome events of will. Weariness invades your spirit, and gravity begins falling inside of you, dragging down every bone. The tide you never valued has gone out, and you are marooned on unsure ground. Something within you has closed down, and you cannot push yourself back to life. You have been forced to enter empty time. The desire that drove you has relinquished, and there is nothing else to do now but rest and patiently learn to receive the self you have forsaken for the race of days. At first, your thinking will darken, and sadness will take over like listless weather. The flow of unwept tears will frighten you. For you have traveled too fast over false ground, and now your soul has come to take you back. So take refuge in your senses. Open up. Open up to the small miracles you rushed through. Become inclined to watch the way of rain when it falls slow and free. Imitate the habit of twilight, taking time to open the well of color that has fostered the brightness of day. Draw alongside the silence of stone until its calmness can claim you. Be excessively gentle with yourself. Steer clear of those vexed in spirit. Learn to linger around someone of ease who feels they have all the time in the world. Gradually, you will return to yourself having learned a new respect for your heart and the joy that dwells far within slow time. stand for a benediction as we close today? Uh, I, I don't know what you brought in the room this morning. Maybe you woke up and you're like, today is the day the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Or some other version of that. Um, and I just want to say thanks for being here. Thanks for holding this space with us. There, there will likely come a day when that's not the case and somebody else will be able to hold that for you. Um, but for those of you who came maybe with something heavy, uh, I just want to remind you that this is a community and a church where you don't have to check what's real and true at the door, uh, where if you're sad, you can be sad, or if you're angry at God, you can be angry at God. If you have questions, you can ask questions. If you have joy, you can have joy. If you have um, faith and um, delight, you can, like, it all belongs. Uh, so thank you for bringing who you are here. Um, I'm going to actually close, uh, invite you to close with me by singing the doxology together. Uh, I'd love for you to help me, if that's all right. So, Dan, can you give us a note to start on? Find us online at www.
at awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.